Pie in the Sky Media. This series contains adult language and descriptions of graphic violence throughout. Listener discretion is advised. I'm Carolyn Osorio, and this is my new podcast, The Murder Chronicles. You're listening to episode 29, The Highway to Hell. To this day, only one person, Randall Woodfield, or Randy as he was called, really knows when it all began. How the need to expose himself to unsuspecting women and girls when he was just a teenager would ultimately lead him down the highway of hell, a road trip of his own devising where he would become infamous as the so-called I-5 killer, one of the most violent serial killers in U.S. history. For today's episode, you'll hear from former Marion County District Attorney Chris Van Dyke. He was traveling up and down I-5. He would call a woman that he had met in the bar, in a bar or socially. He would hit on him on the phone call. He would be rejected during that phone call, and then he would seek out women in the vicinity to sexually assault and sometimes murder. So there was this rejection behavior that was really evident. And you'll also hear from Senior Sports Illustrated writer John Wertheim, whose deep dive into the abyss of Randy Woodfield, called the I-5 Killer, was extremely helpful in putting together the timeline of this week's episode. For a while, football staved this off, and this guy had these ambitions to be a football player, and it was a, a distraction, and it sort of kept his uh, his baser impulses at, at bay. And then once football was no longer something he could pursue, once it was clear he wasn't going to play in the NFL, that's when things took a really dark turn. I also tapped into the great Ann Rule's book, The I-5 Killer, as a resource, too. Randall Woodfield grew up in Salem, the state capital of Oregon. Salem is roughly 50 minutes from Portland. Randy was the youngest of three children. His dad was an executive at the phone company, and his mom was a homemaker. Randy grew up in the rarefied air of upper-middle-class privilege. It appears that Randy Woodfield had a very normal childhood from a highly respected and well-known family. His older sisters were high achievers at school, and Randy was encouraged to play sports. On the surface, everything seemed as right as rain. Until it wasn't. Especially after they got that shocking call, when he was in high school, that he'd been arrested for indecent exposure. He'd been caught standing on a bridge where, in front of a group of teenage girls, he proceeded to expose himself. His parents were quick to get their son into counseling, and Randy's coaches tried to keep the situation quiet so he wouldn't get kicked off his high school football team. It was the early 1970s when a teenage boy from a quote-unquote good family who was caught exposing himself, it's safe to say that the conventional wisdom back then would have perceived the crime as just a lapse in judgment, a boys-will-be-boys mentality, and that one mistake shouldn't ruin the kid's life. Because unlike today, back then, when someone who exposed themselves, they were called flashers or peeping toms, it wasn't thought to be an indication that the person would elevate to a more serious crime. But by today's standards, we know that mindset is absolutely incorrect, that these crimes are huge red flags and should be taken very seriously. 
Even after the indecent exposure arrest, Randy retained his image as just an all-American kid. But there were whispers. He'd be described as a loner, a bit strange, didn't exactly fit in. And one thing became very obvious. Randall Woodfield was very self-involved and narcissistic when it came to his looks. It hadn't gone unnoticed that he craved attention and the spotlight. And football had become a vehicle for that adulation he so craved. So when Randy turned 18, his juvenile record was expunged. But that didn't stop his supposed adolescent antics. He was arrested again after high school when he was attending a community college where he allegedly broke into his ex-girlfriend's apartment when she wasn't home and trashed the place. At the time, there wasn't enough evidence for a jury to convict him, so he got off. And despite the whispers about Randy Woodfield, he was able to keep his arrests in the shadows because they seemingly had no impact on his success on the field. After that year of community college, he transferred to Portland State University, or PSU, and he was active in the Evangelical Christian Student Group Campus Crusade for Christ and also the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. He became well-known as PSU's star-wide receiver. During this time, he was arrested multiple times for indecent exposure and was convicted twice, all while working toward his dream of playing for the NFL. He'd become addicted to those bright Friday night lights, where a coach's rally cry of, clear eyes, full hearts can't lose. The secret sauce of a winning team, discipline, athleticism, good sportsmanship, and of course, giving your heart and soul and then some. But that team mentality wasn't foremost on Randy's mind. It was the crowd's adoration. It's what he lived for. A former teammate would later recall Woodfield's vanity, saying, Quote, Randall was always grooming himself. That even carried over to the way he played. He seemed like he was more interested in looking cute out there than getting the job done. Randy didn't hide his desire for fame as he lapped up the cheers when he caught the football under the white hot spotlight at Portland State University's football field. One can imagine it was his happy place, knowing all eyes were on him, checking out his physique as he sprinted down the field. Randy had become intoxicated with his own image and athleticism. It was everything to him, like Narcissus staring into the pool of water at his own reflection, falling in love with himself. Randy had sculpted his six-foot-tall frame, 170 pounds of chiseled perfection. He knew he was good-looking with a thicket of curly brown hair that matched his eyes. But on the inside, no one had any idea of his true obsessions, his evil, sadistic desires. His appearance had always been the perfect distraction for his deeds, a mask he'd always hidden behind. And yet... Randy couldn't hide what some young women sensed lurking beneath that veneer, an intangible creepiness. He rubbed many the wrong way. They couldn't say exactly what, but there was something off about him. Even so, most of the outside world, including the NFL scout from the Green Bay Packers, who came to watch him play at PSU in the fall of 1973, was jazzed by the find. This kid appeared to have all the right moves. In fact, the scout was so impressed, he would gush to the university coach, saying, he's quite a jumper. Boy, he can really cut on a dime. Randy's coach agreed. He was fast on the field as a wide receiver, and he could hustle. With good hands, he was a great catcher. His running was fast and smooth and fluid, and boy, he could jump. But his coach added, something unexpected related to the young man's medal what he was made of, 
was questionable. The coach said, Randy avoids getting hit. He doesn't like to feel pain. And being a wide receiver, that was a problem. He would say, it's a point of character, the coach told the scout. Woodfield doesn't have that. I asked John Wertheim if the coach was using coded language, a way of warning the scout. I think more than anything, it's, it's sort of, uh, it's almost code for cowardice. I mean, it's, it's someone who shies away from physical contact. And I, I don't think it's selfishness in the sense of, uh, you know, putting yourself before team. I think it's almost, he's, he's afraid to get hit. He doesn't like pain. He doesn't want to get, uh, you know, it's, it's sort of, uh, it, it's a, a real condemnation of, of his appetite and uh, threshold for, for physical contact. It's a strange label. It's, it's not something a coach would normally advertise. Uh, I mean, unless the, the guy was brutally honest, it, it's not a trait you really want in a, in a wide receiver. And it's, I, I think it's pretty remarkable that a, a coach, I mean, it's like commend the coach for his honesty, but it's a, it's a strange thing to say about one of your players who has aspirations of getting drafted. At the end of the day, who knows why the coach added those two cents? which didn't matter anyway, because the scout had been so bedazzled by Randy, it didn't matter. Because back then, they just didn't have the vetting process that they have now. I mean, today, the, the NFL combine, sort of the process you go through before drafting a player, is so in-depth, and players are asked all sorts of things. I mean, so, some of them are really distasteful and racist, and their famous ones are, you know, whether your mother was a prostitute. I mean, there's all sorts of background research and whole scouting departments that go into background research. The notion that someone, uh, I mean, he obviously hadn't committed any murders, but uh, the, the, the idea that someone with Randy Woodfield's profile and, and prior arrest and scuttlebutt would ever get drafted in the NFL today, even in the low rounds, is, uh, is, is nil. Randy's closely guarded secret was kept, and despite the arrests and convictions, he was the 428th pick in the 1974 NFL draft. The Green Bay Packers had no idea that they were selecting a man to potentially play on their team who would go on to be a serial killer. In June of 1974, Randy flew to Wisconsin to attend a training camp. His hopes were high. He was incredibly starry-eyed. It was everything he had ever wanted to play for the NFL. He just had to make the Green Bay Packers team. Ultimately, Randy's dream of being a player in the NFL was cut short. After that training camp, he was cut from the team. He never made the final roster. He would never play one game for the NFL. Instead of returning to Portland... Randy stayed in Wisconsin and played for a semi-pro football team, hoping that the Packers would see the error of their ways and bring him back. But after a season on the semi-pro team, they dropped him too. They never gave a reason as to why he was cut. Did they get wind that there were 10 cases of indecent exposure that were believed to be Randy Woodfield? A police officer familiar with the case when Randy lived in Wisconsin would later say, quote, Woodfield couldn't keep it in his pants. It isn't clear if Randy didn't make the final roster of the Green Bay Packers and was also ultimately cut from the semi-pro team in Wisconsin because higher-ups had finally gotten wind of his alleged and adjudicated criminal history. Went into the story thinking um, this was going to be another coddled athlete who was defects and flaws were overlooked by coaches and teammates who cared more about keeping him eligible than doing the right thing, which, which we see 
you know, regrettably uh, is, is fairly a common theme in sports. It, it didn't really happen that way. I mean, I think this was someone who just, you know, you, you meet him once and he seems like a nice enough guy and he's a good looking guy and he can carry a conversation. And he was part of the fellowship for Christian athletes. He seemed sort of like a, you know, pr- pretty normal college kid. And then he also had this this dark side and this strange side. And it first surfaced before he got to college when he was uh, a teenager. And then it seemed to intensify and I mean, something that, you know, I, I put this out there in the story is that for a while, football staved this off. And this guy had these ambitions to be a football player and it was a, a distraction and it sort of kept his uh, his baser impulses at, at bay. And then once football was no longer something he could pursue, once it was clear he wasn't going to play in the NFL, that's when things took a really dark turn. I mean, there were there were these earmarks starting when he was uh, a teenager growing up um you know, on the Oregon coast, but it was once football was out of his life, that's when things really went off track. And I I think it was less a question of uh, complicity in football than than football was sort of there as this distraction. And and once it was gone, then his base or instincts uh, really sort of uh, emerged and came to the surface. According to John, when he was doing research for his feature, he ran up against roadblocks. I mean, why would they want to remember just how close the NFL had come to employing a future serial killer? The NFL is this this monster now that um, best rated show on television and this league that does you know ten figures worth of revenue every year and the franchises are worth you know minimum two billion dollars. That's fairly recent. That was not the NFL that drafted uh, Randy Woodfield a, a while ago, but not that long ago. So um, yeah, I mean p- part of um, you know, there, there wasn't, I don't want to say fun, but it's, it's sort of, you, you can have an amusing thought exercise trying to imagine uh, various chapters of the story in, in the NFL of today. Correct me if I'm wrong in, in you writing the story that the NFL wants to keep as far away from Randy Woodfield as possible. They, I mean, I think I read in a couple places, it probably was in your piece, how they were like, oh, I've never heard of Randy Woodfield. Really? And, and it feels like it's kind of like that's the line they want to take. And of course, why wouldn't they? Who would want to say that we drafted this guy and look what happened? Did you run up against some brick walls with trying to get interviews with people in the NFL to talk about him? Yeah, there, there was a lot of, uh, a lot of either amnesia or ignorance. Um, I, it did not seem as though uh, people had much recollection. And, you know, I mean, in fairness, the guy never technically played in the NFL. It was decades ago. This was not um, a, a story that a lot of people, you know, I, I hadn't heard this before. I stumbled upon it either. But I, it also is one of these things where the NFL clearly wanted to uh, keep its distance. And even 40 years later, nobody wanted to admit that Green Bay Packers had selected someone who you know, had suddenly turned into a serial killer. We'll be back after a quick break. Randall Woodfield was devastated by being cut from both teams. His prospects seemed dismal. He was a 24-year-old college dropout, and in late 1974, he moved back to Portland, Oregon, a failure. A once-promising career was over, so he began to work odd jobs, and he simmered. He was now the disgraced, wannabe, washed-out footballer who was ramping up. He was readying his revenge. It was time for payback. And his targets were young women in a local park. In early 1975... 
Portland police were investigating a series of attacks and burglaries against women in a park. Their attacker was described as good-looking, athletically built, and armed with a knife. The suspect's M.O. would be to rush at a young woman, demand oral sex, before jetting off with her purse. Investigators launched an undercover operation. A female officer was posing as a young woman just going for a walk through the park, and Randy Woodfield took the bait. He'd been lying in wait behind some bushes. When she walked by, he sprang from his hiding place, brandishing a knife. He demanded the undercover officer's purse. On March 3, 1975, Randall Woodfield was arrested. During this interrogation, he confessed, blaming his crimes on his use of steroids, which he implied had an effect on his sex drive. Woodfield was sentenced to 10 years in prison, but he wouldn't be in prison for long. Just four years later, in 1979, he was paroled. Randy had charmed his way into getting an A-plus report from a corrections division psychiatrist. After his release, Randy worked as a bartender and he rented rooms from people. Outwardly, he projected confidence. And even though he wasn't a hotshot football player on the field, he was still obsessed with his appearance. He sent nude photos of himself to women and even to Playgirl. In late 1979, he sent a photo of himself all oiled up, muscles flexed, to Playgirl, and he was chosen for the Guy Next Door feature. It was around this time that his need for retribution had spun out of control. He was ready to take his revenge and sexual violence to the next level, and his vicious and brutal attack would be against someone he knew. According to the investigation timeline, Randy Woodfield's first murder occurred on October 9, 1980. Sherry Ayers was sexually assaulted, bludgeoned, and stabbed in the neck. Investigators discovered that she knew Randy Woodfield since the second grade. Apparently, they had exchanged letters when he was in prison, and Sherry's family told investigators about him, and it wasn't long before he was pulled into an interrogation room. Randy refused to take a polygraph test, and his blood type didn't match that of the semen collected from the victim. This was way before DNA was used to solve crimes. So they had to let him go. Later, it would come to light that there was an error with the lab work that would account for the semen not matching Woodfield's blood type. Seven weeks later, on Thanksgiving Day, Randy Woodfield went to 22-year-old Darcy Fix's home with plans to sexually assault her. He'd gotten to know Darcy during college. Apparently, she'd been going out with one of his friends from PSU. What Woodfield wasn't expecting was her boyfriend, 24-year-old Douglas Altig, who was at her home when he arrived. Both Darcy and Douglas were found shot to death execution style. A 32 caliber gun was missing from the scene. Because of Woodfield's connection to Darcy, he was questioned about the murders, but nothing tied him to the investigation, and again, they had to let him go. It was after these murders that Woodfield began a series of robberies, sexual assaults, and murders up and down I-5. The locations he would choose were within two miles of the freeway. He drove his 1974 Champagne Edition Volkswagen Bug and held up gas stations, ice cream shops, and homes across Washington, Oregon, and California. Former Marion County Prosecutor Chris Van Dyke. The cases that I described where women were working in restaurants and buildings um, kind of spanned from 
Seattle, a little north of Seattle, down into Shasta County in California. So I don't know how many miles it is, probably four or 500 mile range. And initially, the, the cases from Seattle, from Portland, Salem, down in Shasta County were the first cases that kind of come under this investigative umbrella that was you know, slowly being identified. And it expanded beyond that. So the first cases were in that geography, and then more were added as, as more became known. Back then, police in multiple jurisdictions didn't communicate with each other the way that they do now. And the crimes in the different communities appeared to be one-offs. No one was putting together a pattern because some of the victims were sexually assaulted, some were robbed and sexually assaulted, and some were robbed, sexually assaulted, and murdered. It wasn't the same M.O. at every place. My office and the Marion, Marion County Sheriff's Office to kind of collect the data uh, to put their, their collective heads together and, and try to see if these things were in fact related and if so, how law enforcement could work together to try to apprehend someone. You know, this was this is the early 80s, so there, there was no internet, no cell phones. It was very much a, an analog time, so communications were by phone and payphone and literally sending faxes between the agencies as it became kind of a, a collective recognition that all of these various cases were probably committed by the same person. Even though the MO was consistently changing, a pattern did emerge. It became obvious in these scores and scores of burglaries, rapes, and murders that the suspect had a type. Petite, young Caucasian women in their teens and 20s. This type became a part of the profile after one attack when the suspect sexually assaulted two young girls. Then another attack was connected to the suspect based on his description. The victim told police that he robbed her, then forced her to lift up her shirt. And when she complied, he growled, something to the effect of, ugly, before sprinting off. This seemed to confirm that he was selecting victims based on a particular look. The primary cases where law enforcement initially began to believe that the crimes were committed by a single person involved women working in, gosh, in stores. Uh, in the case of Marion County, where I worked, two women were you know, working their way through college as nighttime janitors. They're doing a janitorial service. So there are places where one or more women, usually one or two, were working at night alone, and an individual came in and uh, with a silver gun and a Band-Aid on his nose, and as you described, was tall and, you know, uh, athletic and not unattractive, um, committed robberies, um, sexual assaults, and in some cases actually murdered the victim. I think it was those cases that, that kind of pulled these various agencies together and started the coordination to compare facts, compare descriptions, and from that, uh, other cases which were not specifically of that profile. For example, um, a girl, a woman and her boyfriend were killed in, in her home. And other cases, you know, law enforcement began to look at as possibly connected. And some of those were ultimately connected at the time, and some of those were not connected until got decades later when DNA evidence became useful and um, hunches about the cases being connected were confirmed later with scientific evidence that, that was simply not available in the early 80s. Up and down I-5, you have these horrific crimes, scores of armed robberies, sexual assaults, attempted kidnappings, and murders. On January 18, 1981, Around 9 o'clock, 20-year-old Sherry Hull was finishing up her shift as a cleaner for an office building in Central Oregon. 
The building was empty, except Sherry and her best friend, Lisa Garcia, that Sunday night. They both worked together at this part-time job and were college students. So Sherry was getting ready to head out when she was shocked at the sight of a young man who grabbed her. She was trying to figure out how he got into the building. He was dressed in jeans and a leather jacket. He appeared tall and strong, and he had a gun, which he held to her as he forced her to walk down the hall. He was surprised to see her friend, Lisa Garcia. Woodfield would take both Sherry and Lisa to a back room where he sexually assaulted them before shooting them both in the back of the head. Lisa could hear Sherry, gasping for air, dying right next to her. Lisa pretended to be dead and would survive in spite of the bullets in the back of her skull. I think the, the, the magnitude of the crime in human terms began to really sink in. That, you know, here's, here's a victim trying to work her way through college, and someone comes into places where she's working with her best friend, sexually assaults both of them, shoots them both in the back of the head, and she plays dead as her best friend dies next to her on the floor. Randy Woodfield fled the scene, believing he'd left both women dead. But Lisa was alive, and she was able to call the police, even able to give a description of the man as tall, athletic, and that he wore something over the bridge of his nose, like a strip of athletic tape, something a football player would wear back in the day. A nearby police officer was on his way to the scene. About a mile away from the office building, where the crime had taken place, he noticed a man who seemed to match the suspect's description, standing nonchalantly at an intersection. The officer was like, there's no way this could be the suspect because at the time, he reasoned, it would be physically impossible for a man to have gotten that far from the office building on foot that fast. He didn't yet know that it absolutely was possible if you were a one-time professional athlete who had been drafted to the NFL as a wide receiver. The officer drove past him and Woodfield's killing spree would continue. A source who was close to the investigation would say that the murder cases didn't become connected to the I-5 bandit until after Sherry Hall's murder. Some erroneous lab testing was to blame. Remember those Portland cases where Woodfield's blood didn't match the semen found inside the victim, but also that police officers had a hard time grasping the concept of a serial killer at that time. And up until October of 1980, the I-5 bandit, as he was known at first, hadn't killed anyone, at least to their knowledge. Murder hadn't fit within the framework of his M.O., but that was changing quickly. On February 3, 1981, 14-year-old Janelle Jarvis and her mother, Donna Eckerd, were found shot to death in their Mountain Gate, California home. And just a couple weeks later, 18-year-old Julie Reitz was found shot to death in the Beaverton home she shared with her mother. It was believed that Judy was killed sometime close to midnight on Valentine's Day, and Randy Woodfield was connected to Julie. A few weeks later, police made the connection back to Woodfield and they went to speak with him. But he denied knowing Julie. And Randy Woodfield became a suspect because he worked as a bartender in a bar in the Portland area. And it just so happened that a number of the victims had uh, gone to that bar on, a, on several occasions. And Woodfield was not originally 
contacted as a suspect or identified as a suspect. He was someone the police wanted to talk to because they thought he might know something. And uh, they started digging into his background and locating him. He was in Eugene at that time. They discovered that he had been involved in several several cases, for, you know, ranging from flashing individuals to actually sexual attempted sexual assaults, and had done time in the Oregon Penitentiary for it. Let's talk a little bit about this suspect because, on the face of it, I mean, he's the all-American guy, right? And and then some. I mean, he was. You know, he grew up on the Oregon coast and was a all-state football player in high school. Uh, he went to Portland State and did really well at Portland State as a football player. He was ultimately drafted by the Green Bay Packers. Uh, you know, he was athletic, you know, about six feet tall, good-looking guy by all descriptions. You know, he was uh, very popular as a bartender in Portland. He, on the face of it, not, not someone that you would suspect would be involved in what ultimately been, became serial killing. And um, when you peel back some of that, that veneer, however, you saw, you know, behavior that began in, on the coast of Oregon with flashing. Uh, he was actually kicked off of the Green Bay Packers football team because of an episode of exposing himself in Green Bay. And then ultimately some attempted sexual assaults of an undercover police officer in a, in a Portland park. The veneer was chipping away because Randy Woodfield matched the description to a T, even down to wearing that tape across his nose like a football player would. Randall Woodfield went from being a person of interest to a suspect. When Randy Woodfield was eventually um, arrested and held on a parole violation in Eugene, uh, a, a photo lineup was done, and I believe there's about 20 different living victims. Uh, from across that the geography I just described, that came to look at a um, to look at a, to participate in a lineup, and it was at that point where you know it was fairly conclusive after all these various victims identified Randy Woodfield that he was in fact uh, the person who was loosely being described as the I-5 killer, and that that description came because most of these cases occurred along the I-5 corridor, which is the main uh, highway north and south from California, Oregon, and Washington. Chris describes what it was like as a prosecutor during this time as this high-profile case was unfolding. And so when you were working with the investigators and you saw what was going on, what were you thinking? I mean, as a seasoned prosecutor, I'm sure you were like, I mean, even this case may be... You were like, what the heck? No, no, absolutely. I knew that uh, I had been communicating with Dave Bishop and David Kamenek, who were in Eugene, doing the surveillance and interviewing Woodfield and ultimately executing the search warrant. And it it really wasn't until, and it was in the middle of the night, (laughs) Dave Bishop called me and, and just literally breathlessly said, we have these phone records, and it is literally a map of the crimes of the I-5 killer. And... I think it was at that point that we knew this is the guy. And it was confirmed with the later lineups and the, the victims identifying him as the assailant that we knew we, we, had, we had the person who was the I-5 killer. More Murder Chronicles after the break. As it would turn out, phone records would become a huge piece of this investigation. I think if there was a, a a moment when the case broke for us, it was when Detective Bishop from the Beaverton Police Department obtained Randy Woodfield's phone records. And uh, he was making calls from phone booths up and down I-5 and charging it to his home phone. So in the old world of pay phones, your phone record would show that you made a call 
from a, a particular location at a specific time. And those times and locations connected directly to the cases along the corridor. So it was uh, you know, an old-fashioned phone record, which in the end was uh, the evidence that kind of conclusively, you know, of course, before the eyewitness identification, made it fairly, fairly certain that uh, he, he was the guy. The phone records not only put Randall Woodfield near all the crime scenes, but the records also log a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy, his hatred of women. He would never forget the women who had turned down his sexual advances. And if he couldn't get his revenge against those women, he would kill others as a way of getting even. The pattern that was identified, and this relates back to the phone records, was that he would go to a cell phone, when he was traveling up and down I-5, he would call a woman that he had met in the bar, in a bar or socially. He would hit on him on the phone call. He would be rejected during that phone call. And then he would seek out women in the vicinity to sexually assault and then sometimes murder. So there was this rejection behavior that was really evident. And we, we talked to, you know, we had the phone records. So we talked to all of these people that he had called on the phone and they all reported the same thing. He was a, aggressively flirting with them, trying to ask them out. They were saying no thanks because they thought he was kind of, they didn't know him well. And he was kind of being creepy as they described. And after that rejection, he would go and commit the crime. And so there was, there was that pattern of behavior that emerged once we had the phone records. And that was characteristic of most of the crimes he committed. They also executed a search warrant at the residence where he was renting a room and other evidence came to light. They discovered a bullet in Woodfield's racquetball bag that matched bullets found in the victims. One of the things was a, a 25 caliber bullet, which is anyone who knows ammunition at all, it, it is a very rare caliber. It was a 25 caliber revolver, and it's a rare ammunition. It was the same caliber that was uh, used in the two shooting victims, in my case, in Marion County. Uh, also, uh, rolls of white athletic tape in a gym bag of a similar kind that was described in, you know, most of these cases. That tape was the same tape he would use to bind some of his victims and also wear across the bridge of his nose during his crime spree. He liked when you guys were talking to him. Well, he was incredibly cold, very unresponsive. It took a great deal to get him to talk at all. He would admit nothing. He would initially try to charm the police because you you know he was kind of a charismatic guy, but then once the questions became more pointed, uh, he would just close down. So it never, uh, in all of the interviews that occurred with Woodfield, did anything ever would he ever admit anything or or give any evidence himself? Um, he knew you know he'd done time. Uh, he knew better than to talk to the police and tell them anything, and he never did. Randy Woodfield's family has been very quiet about the case. According to the case files, there's a record of his dad visiting his son in prison after he was arrested, but he didn't stay long. It's alleged that he walked out saying something to the effect that, quote, he's not the son I know, but added that he wasn't going to help detectives put away his son. I asked Chris if he thought Woodfield had gotten sloppy or if he wanted to get caught. He had committed so many crimes without getting caught that there's, there is an arrogance about behavior like this. These sorts of people don't believe they can be caught. And I think because he had done time in the penitentiary, he had dealt, you know, spent 
time in a cell with other cons that, you know, uh, among this community, you just simply know you don't talk to the police. You don't admit anything. You don't tell them anything. Uh, if you talk, you don't talk about anything related to the crime. And that that was the profile of how Woodfield responded. Chris says Randy Woodfield rarely showed emotion, even when being interrogated for hours by detectives. As they went over the horrific crime spree, Randy would just slick back his hair with both hands and smile. But Chris says after the lineup, where Lisa Garcia identified Randy Woodfield as the man who had murdered her best friend and had tried to kill her too, Chris says everything changed for him as a prosecutor. I think the the emotional part of this for me personally started when I traveled down to Eugene for the lineup. And um, I, I had met the, the surviving victim in in our case. I was the, the uh, prosecutor that went out to the scene the night of the homicide. Uh, I had visited the surviving victim in the hospital. Uh, but it wasn't until I went went to the lineup and, and saw her reaction when she identified Randy Woodfield. And I actually then drove her back to Salem from Eugene, which is about an hour-long drive. That I, I think the, the, the magnitude of the crime in human terms began to really sink in. That you know, here's, here's a victim trying to work her way through college, and someone comes into places where she's working with her best friend, sexually assaults both of them, shoots them both in the back of the head, and she plays dead as her best friend dies next to her on the floor. And so spending that time with her and, and um, realizing at a you know, very fundamental level what she had gone through kind of shifts it from purely an intellectual exercise into a, a pretty emotional one. And that kind of carried through in the trial. So let's break down again where we are in the case. Randy Woodfield is a suspect. He's been identified by scores of victims from multiple crime scenes, including Lisa Garcia, who survived the attack where her friend was murdered. They have him in custody. And here's an interesting tidbit. You might think that a puffed-up prosecutor would try to strong-arm their way into prosecuting this case, a way to make a name for themselves. But, as it turned out, this couldn't have been further from the truth. At the time, Chris Van Dyke was a rookie prosecutor in Marion County. There were about 20 different law enforcement agencies from three states. Uh, after the victims uh, identified Woodfield and we had the phone records, everybody knew that Woodfield was the guy, but nobody wanted to take the case. Because of the profile of this and, and the publicity, everyone was really nervous to be the first one to step up and actually charge Woodfield. And I I was following the lineup at a conversation with Dave Bishop and um, and uh, David Kamenak. And they sat me down and they said, if you don't take this, allow us to arrest him and take him back to Salem, we're never going to talk to you again. We're going to kick your ass. <laughs> I said, We've got a solid case. Nobody's taking it. Step up and be the guy. And I said, arrest him. We, we literally decided um, in Eugene that we were going to be the first jurisdiction to do it because nobody else would. And so, But why? Why? I thought this is totally counterintuitive to what I thought you were going to say. Oh, I thought I you guys were going to be it, fighting uh, over who gets to take it, take it on. That, 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 would, that is kind of the, the, absolutely the intuitive response you would have to this. But a case of this profile had not come along in Oregon in, in, in a lifetime. And people knew that they had him, and they knew that, that he was going to be incarcerated. Nobody wanted to take the risk of losing a case like this. Randy Woodfield's trial began in the summer of 1981. He was charged with Sherry Hull's murder, Lisa Garcia's attempted murder, and two counts of sodomy. 
This case had uh, extremely high profile, as you might imagine. You know, four states have been kind of on high alert, warning people over their safety for months. And this person was in try being tried in Salem, so the media attention was extraordinary. Um, again, this is before the internet, but the courtroom was largely full of reporters. There was a metal detector to get in. It was the top of the news and all the, the news stations in Oregon. So combined with just the, the normal duties of a prosecutor was uh, that pressure. I was 30, 31 years old. I had been elected when I was 29, and I had not tried a murder case before. Uh, so I was... Uh, a young rookie and and probably the, the the most important homicide case in in many decades in Oregon was trying this against the the best defense attorney in in the state so it was it was it was a high pressure to say it was high pressure would be understatement Chris says there were many jurisdictions with skin in the game. Indictments were rolling in from various jurisdictions in Washington and Oregon, including multiple counts of murder, rape, sodomy, attempted kidnapping, armed robbery, and the possession of a firearm by an ex-convict, many of whom didn't want to stick their necks out with such a high-profile case. He said it made sense that Marion County would take it. And in fairness, too, I think we probably had not only the most serious crime, but probably the best case in the spectrum of cases were out there. And we had a living victim. Uh, we had the bullet uh, from the gym bag that matched the bullet from our victims. You know, it was it was a good case. And so because of that, we decided that, you know, let's go. And so Marion County became the, kind of the one case, the one place where the case was tried. Randy Woodfield pleaded not guilty, and yet one of the pieces of evidence that would ultimately tie Woodfield to so many of these cases was actually sort of bizarre. Why would he wear that tape on the bridge of his nose during all of these attacks? It became a signature, and Chris says it was an important detail that came out in trial because it connected him to all of these cases. Woodfield's trial began in the summer of 1981. Actually, athletic tape is what he used, and it was white. And we actually, during the course of the trial, we, we had interviewed Randy Woodfield's cellmate uh, when he was at the Oregon State Penitentiary. And he testified that, you know, as, as they're talking about how they got caught in their crimes and how do you get away with crimes, and the, the stuff that convicts talk about sitting in a cell together, there's a long, several long conversations about how do you distract people's attention when you're committing a crime. And his cellmate said, well, get, you can do things as simple as putting a piece of tape and people will fixate on that piece of tape and they will not pay attention to what you actually look like. That this distraction is an amazing disguise because you can wear it in public. It's not like wearing a Nixon mask. You can walk down the street with it. But when you're in this tense situation of you know, committing a crime, that people will look at that tape and not look at your other features. And that was absolutely the case. So it was, it was a, a, just a simple but, but, frankly, pretty clever form of disguise. Ironically, it connected him to all of these cases. We talked earlier about the calling cards they discovered from the landlady who showed detectives the phone bill. During the trial, it was revealed that Randy Woodfield loved calling potential women all over in Washington, Oregon, and California. In fact, he'd made thousands of calls, and they were all documented for police to contrast and compare with all the robberies, murders, and sexual assaults. 
Younger listeners might not have a clue as to what calling cards are or were, but back in the day, if you were on the road and wanted to make a call, and especially if you wanted to make a long distance call and you didn't have a pocket full of change, but you had a calling card, you go into a phone booth and you dial the operator. But you could really make these calls from anywhere as long as you had that calling card and they would be billed to the card. So Randy made all of these calls when he was on the road. If he was rejected by a woman, that made him angry. Chris says within minutes, he would find a victim or victims, some he knew and some he didn't. In court, some examples of this were revealed. In February 1981, he called his sister in Shasta County, California, according to those calling card records. He wanted to have coffee with her, but his sister allegedly rejected him, saying her husband didn't want him around. Soon after, Woodfield forced himself into the Shasta home of 14-year-old Janelle Jarvis and her mother, Donna Eckerd, who was 37, and he murdered them. According to Ann Rule, who was at his trial, when Randy Woodfield took the stand in his defense, she recalled him speaking very softly, with his arms crossed, and she would say that he looked nothing like the star athlete that he was. And she would later write about this in her book. Quote, Randy Woodfield had been touted in the media as a massively muscled professional athlete. The man in person seemed strangely diminished, not a superman after all. He looked, if anything, humbled, a predatory creature brought down and caged in mid-rampage. Chris and I discussed the significance of all the exposure incidents in Woodfield's background, pointing to the fact that indecent exposure has been said to be one of the signs of violentization toward women. But you never know if a person is going to escalate. FBI actually assisted in trying to draw up a profile of him from the descriptions and his behavior. And, you know, other other than, you know, the the details of, you know, playing professional football, the kind of the, the in broad strokes, his profile was pretty accurate, you know, uh, that he was sociopathic, that he had, you know, no, no sense of guilt, remorse, or empathy, uh, that he was going to be cold and he could be non-communicative, and that there would have been elements of this behavior probably would have been manifested in directly related ways, in this case, uh, exposure. So the the broad strokes profile that was done was spot on. He did not raise any psychological or insanity defenses, so we we actually didn't do any particular profiling. Uh, There was a pre-sentence report done in which he was described as as a sociopath simply based on evidence from the cases, but no no detailed psychological examination by a psychologist or psychiatrist was ever, was ever conducted. The trial lasted a little over a month, and the jury came back with a guilty verdict within about three and a half hours. On June 26, 1981, 30-year-old Randall Woodfield was convicted on all counts. Because there wasn't a death penalty option in Oregon, Woodfield was sentenced to a prison term of life plus 90 years. Eventually, 35 more years were added to his sentence when a jury in Benton County, Oregon, convicted him of sodomy and weapons charges tied to another attack in a restaurant bathroom. But what about all of those other cases? District attorneys up and down the I-5 corridor had a big decision to make. Most of the agencies and, and, and DA's offices that looked at this said, Whitfield's never getting out of prison. It cost Marion County a fortune to try this thing. Uh, people are safe. He's off the streets. He's locked up and will die in prison. So decided not, you know, for better or worse, decided not to invest in, in uh, cases in their jurisdictions. But as time marched on, some believe Randy Woodfield is responsible for more than 40 murders. 
that a number of the cases out of Portland and Beaverton in particular, uh, Darcy Fix, I believe, is one of the cases, um, who was the victim and her boyfriend, uh, the, the DNA has conclusively tied him to those crimes. And I think that's, that's the reason that even if there were possibly a parole, that he's not going anywhere. I think it's generally recognized law enforcement that there literally are dozens of cases in which DNA is connected him. And I, and I just don't have the total figure. I don't know that anyone is actually, maybe you can figure it out. I'd be interested to see how many there are now because they seem to be you know, popping up across the, that I-5 geography. During our interview, I was quick to address the elephant in the room with Chris Van Dyke, that his dad is the actor Dick Van Dyke. So at the end of the interview, I was asking him if he was still a prosecutor, and he explained how much this case had an effect on him. Not only on him personally, but his feelings about our criminal justice system. And in my view, he's pretty spot on. What are you doing now? I'm actually, I, after one term as DA, I had uh, I'd gone to enough homicide scenes and dealt with enough tough cases. I actually went and worked for Nike for almost 20 years, first as a lawyer and then in, in marketing communications. And now I'm just, I'm doing consulting work for conservation organizations and outdoor companies. So I, wow. So you you just couldn't. It was just too much doom and gloom. Yeah. You know, you, you see, well, you, you know, you focus on these things. You, you I, I, no doubt you have seen what a lifetime of immersing yourself in these horrible cases and tragedies does to your view of humanity and of life. And um, I still have a lot of friends who worked in law enforcement and there's a lot of them continue to struggle with a very negative views of people and and life in general. And I and I did what I could. I, I ran to kind of correct some of the, the problems that were going on in Marion County at the time. I got them done and I was ready to move on. You know, it's just uh, the criminal justice system is, in, in my view anyway, ill-equipped to deal with, deal with the complexities of what drives criminal behavior. You know, it's, I describe it as um, dealing with brain surgery with a sledgehammer and a chainsaw. You, know, you, you just don't have the tools to deal with uh, the problems of addiction and broken families and um, poverty and race and all the other things that go into this complicated stew of criminal behavior. And um, I just finally got tired of dealing with the clumsy tools we had. You know, in the case of Woodfield, that was, that's a no-brainer, right? You get this guy off the street. Um, but those, these sorts of cases are a small fraction of what the day-in and day-out uh, cases are in law enforcement. They're just, there's a lot of just tragedies that, but for some other intervening force, could have been avoided. And, you know, those are the, those are the cases you see every day. Uh, if you only work to put people like Woodfield in prison, that'd be really easy. Randall Woodfield never confessed to any of the murders or sexual assaults he's accused of or linked to. We still don't know how many crimes he committed before he got caught. Over the years through DNA, he's been connected to other unsolved murders. There are estimates that he could be responsible for more than 40 murders, and that he committed at least 60 unsolved rapes. If you're interested in hearing more details about this case, check out the bonus episode available right now. Our bonus episodes are a place where my producer, Brandon Morgan, and I talk about the cases in more depth. And one more thing, if you enjoyed listening to The Murder Chronicles, please consider taking a minute to give us a five-star review. It really helps. And thanks for listening. The Murder Chronicles is a pie-in-the-sky production recorded live in the beautiful Pacific Northwest. 
We are produced by Brandon Morgan and myself, music by Soundstripe. For Pie in the Sky Media, I'm Carolyn Osorio, your writer and host. Thanks for listening. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.